0: Good morning, everyone. It is a great privilege and joy uh, to be up here again preaching God's word to all of you. And I'm thankful for Ryan and for the music team uh, for leading us in worship. And what a great God we serve and what a great God we know. Something often overlooked, something often forgotten of how awesome and how mighty our God is. And may we not lose that reality that we are not here for a performance. We are not here for a service. Ultimately, we are here for a person and we are here for the person of Christ. And may we not lose that in the instruments, in the things that go around us to make this flow well, but we are here to praise and we are here to glorify. And I pray that we do that through his word this morning. Uh, We've been studying this series on the subject of the power of oneness. In our first lesson, Matthew highlighted from Ephesians chapter four, how our unity comes through our shared identity in Christ, that in the person of Christ, we have a unity that unites us, that binds us, that connects us with other people who have been purchased and bought by the blood of Christ. And in that unity, there is peace in that unity in Christ. We have unity with one another. And then last week, Matthew shared with us an area where our unity needs protected, needs safeguarded in the area of Christian liberties. That though we are saved by the same savior, we are in fact different and distinct people. And when those differences come into play when we gather together, that can cause division and friction. And he navigated well through Romans chapter 14, how we should handle those divisions and disagreements on the basis of our consciences. And so I hope throughout these past two weeks that you have been challenged more frequently to think about how your actions impact your unity with the believers around you. Now, this morning, we will be highlighting a passage right after Uh, math of Romans chapter 14. We will be in Romans chapter 15 verses one through seven. If you would like to turn there in your Bibles, but where I would like to start above all other things is addressing a tragedy in the church. The church today faces a plethora of tragedies. These things that should weigh heavy on us that we as the church face There is the tragedy of identity where you go to different churches and they have lost a sense of who they are. They have become more social clubs. They have become more organized gatherings of people who share the same political views, have the same values, have the same opinions and like to do similar events together. There's the tragedy of service where churches have become self-serving rather than serving others. Where it's about how big can we get? How popular can we get? How professional can we get in everything that we do to attract people? There's also the tragedy of doctrine. Where the church has chosen feelings over sound faith. And then there's the tragedy of love. Which is pursuing a fake superficial love preferring tolerance over self-sacrifice. But I would argue while all of these are tragedies in the fullest sense, there is no greater tragedy than the tragedy of purpose. The tragedy of purpose is losing sight of what and why we go to church. The tragedy of purpose is forgetting the reason for assembling together. And if you fail to remember and reflect and hold fast to your purpose, everything else crumbles. So why are we here at church? What is the purpose or your purpose as the church? There are times, I don't know if you guys are similar to me. You might be. There are certain times in my life where I seem to come to realizations for me. It is driving in my car. I don't know why. Maybe for you, it's running. Maybe for you, it's your morning prayer time, morning study time. I don't know what it is. But for some reason, when I am alone by myself in my car, I come to these realizations, probably because I'm bored and my mind isn't distracted. You know, maybe I should be distracted by the road, but I'm distracted. But one of the biggest areas of realization is when I'm driving here to church on a Sunday, We live just south of town, and so on my way in to church, I pass cars, obviously. And I can't help but think, why are they going to church? Why am I going to church? That purpose question starts to come to my mind. And so I will ask you guys something similar. When have you pondered why you go to church. When have you pondered why the church exists in the first place? Because guys, we are so caught up in the busyness of our lives that things become a part of our routine. And yet the purpose is lost. And so what is your purpose as the church? What is it that you should seek to see realized when you show up here this Sunday morning, or when you gather on a Tuesday, on a Thursday, or at one of the events or outreaches we do here at East Point, why are you there? Ultimately, it's simple. Look with me, if you would, at Ephesians 3.20, where the Apostle Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. Do you guys see that? Where is God's glory supposed to be found? It's supposed to be easily seen, visible, tangible, observable in the church. Now, how is God's glory seen in the church? To answer that question... We also have to think about how is God's glory seen in us? Because as all of us as individuals are called to glorify God in our lives, that is not some thought for us to acknowledge on a Sunday when we hear it. It is a thought that should drive everything that we do in our lives, especially when we are assembled and gathered as the church, because God receives the glory in the church. Think of it as a building. How is an architect glorified by a building that he designs and sees through to completion by its quality, by its impressiveness, by the structure, by all those things being realized. You guys have passed impressive houses and you marvel at the ones who designed those, who constructed those. God receives the glory for the church that he has made and constructed But he also receives the glory for the interior of how the church functions. God does not only receive the glory for us being unified in Christ as the church. He receives the glory by how every single one of you interact with one another as the church. Lest we think that somehow our personal lives are removed from contributing to God's glory in the church. We are the interior. We are the that what people interact with. We're the ones that should be giving God the glory when people come to church and they see how we interact with each other. So the question I want us to honestly ask, how do I or we together glorify God in the church. We'll focus on just a small aspect of what this means because how we glorify God as the church in unity is some massive subject that would take a whole year of sermons to explain and to focus on. So we'll focus on one key area this morning, but we're going to look at the three ways church unity should glorify God. If you would read with me Romans chapter 15, verses one through seven, where the apostle Paul writes, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. As we move forward through this passage and see how our unity should glorify God, we need to keep two key points in mind. The first one is that Paul still has Christian liberties in mind. He still has in mind the differences and distinctions between people that make up the body of Christ. That idea hasn't stopped, but it's continuing over into chapter 15. And so that's still a focus that has impact on the commands and truths that we will see. The second thing is something that we might forget. But directly impacts how significant of a text, uh, the significance of the meaning of the text that we see. The Roman church was a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It was not one ethnicity. And you might say, why does that matter? Those two groups could not see more opposite than one another, the world around them. There's a book that I read called Love the Ones That Drive You Crazy. I read it as soon as I got married to Kinsey. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I told her if I, she sat up front that I wouldn't do that, but I'm kidding. I just read it a couple months ago. But one of the points that one of the points that they make out they they make out in that book, why didn't God start a Gentile church in a Jewish church when it would have been so much easier for them to get along? Is not much of what we see in the New Testament written to address the conflicts that those two groups have with one another. Wouldn't it have been so much easier for the Jews to have their church where things are done their way to their liking, to their policies, their their revelation they received in the old Testament and the Gentiles to express their faith in their Liberty. It would have been easier. And yet there's the church. Why? Because God gets the glory And people who are diverse and different choosing to stay together out of love for him. Isn't that wonderful? Our God gets all the more glory when people who are different choose to stay together and love each other and serve together, not separate because of our differences. The first point that I want to focus on um, from Romans chapter 15 is to glorify God by pleasing one another despite your differences for their edification. Edification. Glorify God by pleasing one another despite your differences for their edification. Let's read verse 1 again together, if you would. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. This passage directly carries over from Paul's previous focus on Christian liberties. He says, now we who are strong, this is in reference to faith. Those who have a strong, mature faith who understand their liberty and freedom to do certain things. Matthew, Pastor Matthew highlighted this last week in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. These believers, by their faith, know their liberty and are not constrained by certain conscience convictions. And what should these believers of this strong, mature faith do? Teach the ones who are weaker, who are less informed, to get with the program, to get with their understanding of liberty, to get with their maturity of faith? Is that what it says? What does it say? Ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. That doesn't sound like teaching or expecting them to step up the level of their faith. What instead are those who are mature and strong in their faith who realize their liberty, what should they instead do? Notice that word ought. It might seem like a simple word, but it is a very important word in this text. Ought means to owe or to be obligated to. It's a reference back to Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another. The principle of love he introduced early in Romans 13. He's tying that together with this idea of bearing with the weaknesses of those without strength by saying you are obligated to bear the burdens and convictions of brothers and sisters of a less mature faith in you out of the command and obligation to love them. Now, you might be thinking obligation is a really strong word to use. And I'm honestly not a big fan of you using that word because it implies a sense of under compulsion of having to, not really choosing to. But let me ask you guys this. Are you not obligated to many people in your life? Are you husbands not obligated to your wives? And you do things for them, not always because you're happy to, but because you're in a covenant relationship with them? Wives, is it not the same for you and your husbands? How about parents with children? Are you not obligated to those of your own household to care, to protect, to guide, to advise? And parents, I mean, sorry, and kids to your parents, where are all the kids at? They're all right there looking at me. You guys are obligated to your parents as well. And how about employees to employers? In a very real sense, we are obligated to them. And again, all of these obligations have levels of intensity and where eventually they have to break off. But what Paul is saying is we are obligated to one another. Think about that for a second. I cannot push my responsibility to care about your conscience, to care about your faith off to the side. I cannot focus on my group of people that I choose to obligate myself to. Scripture doesn't give us that choice where we can pick those who are most familiar with us, who were most alike And those are the people that I'll bear their burdens. Those are the people that I'll be sensitive to their consciences in. Scripture gives us no excuse and no limitation, but to every single one of us, we are obligated to one another. We owe one another love because we are all commanded by God to love one another. What are we obligated to do? What is this that we owe one another, that we have this strong connection to obey and direct towards one another? We are obligated to bear one another's weaknesses, to bear with those weaknesses. To bear means to take up as a burden or carry. I like to think of it as shouldering a backpack. Someone else has this burden and I will share it with them. I will take it upon myself. I don't know if you guys have ever carried around a very heavy backpack, but let me tell you, it affects the way that you move and walk around. It affects how high you can jump. It affects how fast you can run. It affects everything that you can do in your life. What Paul is saying is when you assume the burden of another believer, you are choosing to allow their convictions and their conscience affect your own lives. Let me think of this for a second. How do we see this in our life? How do we see believers bearing the burden of those of a less mature faith? And by the way, who are these Weak, or these people who have weaknesses of those without strength. It's those who are not strong, those who are not able. It's their faith does not allow them to do certain things because of their conscience. Believers are not all equal in our maturity. Believers are not all equal in our faith, but we can all equally please Christ like we saw last week. And what a glorious thing it is. But here's our application that I want to get from this section of Romans 15.1. Do not cast the convictions of other believers off as unimportant or as not your responsibility, but carry them out of love. Carry them out of love. The limitations of their consciences, of those around us who are weaker or less mature in faith, is not something we ignore or forget, but we let them influence our actions and choices so that when we're around them, it positively affects their spiritual well-being. Paul continues. He says, and we should not only bear with those who are weak, but we should also not please ourselves. You'll see this word please come up repetitively in Romans 15. The key, it's a key word in our passage, and it means to act for the good or pleasure of, to satisfy. And it's stated negatively here in verse 1. So what does Paul tell us? He tells us, do not please yourself, which is our natural instinct and inclination. If I have the choice between my happiness and someone else's happiness, what is my instinct to do? Choose my own. My instinct is to consider and regard my good as more important than that as another person. And that becomes a problem when we are called to consider other people first before ourselves. What does it mean to please ourselves in this context? To make that choice. When a brother, when you're out with some, another believer, out to dinner somewhere, and that brother or sister struggles with alcohol, alcohol, what does the choice to please yourself do? It buys a drink. It seeks to gratify its own pleasures and desires at the expense of another person's. Or how about this? For you ladies, or, or guys included, you invite your friends to go with you to a public beach, but you know one of them particularly struggles with pornography or lust. And you're inviting them to an environment where that could be a stumbling block to them. Are you choosing to please yourself or please them? And again, I'm not saying that we're responsible for other people falling into sin. In a sense of, we cause them to do it. But we are responsible for as much as it depends on us to keep them out of it. That's our responsibility and our obligation. To not expose them to to temptation unnecessarily. Or perhaps if you're driving in, another, in your car with a believer and they have a conscience limitation and a type of music they want to listen to. And you think to yourself, it's my car, my music. And you choose to play the music you want at the expense of the conscience of that other brother or sister in Christ. Those are just some examples. But the choice to please ourselves is the choice to satisfy our own wants and desires and pleasures at the expense of someone else's faith. So how do we get to know one another's convictions and consciences? If you're like me, I was running through this text, studying it over last week, and I was stumped. Because I thought to myself of examples of convictions in people's lives that I knew, and I could barely think of any. And to be honest with you, that saddened me because I think that's a problem. Am I so distant and insulated from what people struggle with that I don't know it? Do we hide what we struggle with, what we're convicted of from people for the sake of acceptance and belonging? That hit me hard because if I don't know you, How can I bear with you in the things that bother you? How can I bear with you in the things that you struggle with? If I don't know what it is that you struggle with in the first place. And that hit me hard. Are all of my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ, that surfacy, that shallow where I couldn't tell you what it is that they struggle with and that I should watch to avoid or mention or talk about around them. Or be careful what I do. I don't know, but that, that hit me hard this week. And my challenge to you guys and, inclus- and including myself, get to know the brothers and sisters year around where you know their hearts, you know, the, know their struggles, and you know how to take responsibility, how to bear their weaknesses out of love for them. It's a hard thing to do. So what are we, should we do instead of pleasing ourselves? Paul begins a new focus in verse two. If you would read along with me, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Please here is a command. He says, each of us is to please satisfy, seek the good of his neighbor. This is a broader Christian ethic applied to a specific focus in the differences of those people in a church. So what does it mean to please other believers? It means meeting or fulfilling the spiritual needs, standards, and good of other believers. I think a great example of this was COVID. I have some very strong views of how things were handled in COVID. And I'm sure a lot of you have very strong views on how COVID was handled. What is my response when a brother or sister wears or I don't want to make sure I don't isolate one group and another but what happens when i come face to face with a brother or sister in christ who shares a different view of what happened and they base it in their convictions from scripture what do i do do i disregard it do i ignore it do i call them immature do i call them uninformed That's why this text matters because we face those areas probably more often than we think where it's our conviction and their conviction butting heads. And the challenge that we get from Paul is that we should seek to please our neighbor, that we who are strong, mature in faith, rather than lecturing them, over how incompetent or how short-sighted they are in their liberty are to bear with them in that conviction. That's what we see clearly. Now, we can't take this too far because there is a point of taking this too far. It's a point to where you're a pushover and your sole goal in life is to please every person's view around you. Think of this. You will never not please God by pleasing your neighbor rightly. What I mean is this, by you pleasing your neighbor, you will never in doing so offend the, the law or the word of God. Let me use an example. A believer or someone that professes to be a believer invites you to go to a pride parade to ha- to be there to support acceptance and showing God's love to people. Is your response to be, absolutely, I want to please my neighbor and I want to assume their conviction and I will go to that event to show them support? Absolutely not. Because why? In your presence there, you are showing acceptance for something God obviously does not accept. So there is that line, church. God is not calling us to please other believers in their convictions and in their consciences to the point where we offend God ourselves. So keep that rule in mind. Keep that thought in mind, lest we fall into sin. So pleasing other believers does not come at the expense of pleasing God. That's a very key point. Pleasing other believers and their convictions and in their consciences does not come at the expense of pleasing God ever, where you have to choose one or the other. It should be a both. And if it's times where you're tempted to please someone, at the expense of pleasing God, don't do it. Don't do it. I love what Paul says. I glossed over it at first, but notice how he says each of us, not you. He includes himself. I don't know about you, but I think too much of my maturity sometimes. I think too much of my knowledge sometimes as if there are different tiers to us believers. And the ones who are on the bottom tier need to get up with a program for us that are on the top tier. Each of us, the apostle Paul himself, who Jesus Christ personally revealed himself to, who knew of things far beyond we could ever comprehend, who, couldn't, who saw things that he wasn't allowed to speak of, said that he himself was included in the obligation to please his neighbor, then that means none of us are excluded to. Regardless of how informed, spiritual, or mature we think we are, none of us are excluded from being obligated to please our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, why do we do this? Why do we please our neighbor, those believers who are close by, who are around us, for his good, to his edification. What does edification mean? It simply means the building up. It pictures the construction of a house increasing incrementally in its completion, in its fullness, to where it becomes, in a sense, perfect or whole. So, what does edification mean for us? It refers to the building up of a believer's faith and walk with Christ. All of us are being edified. All of us, our faith is being built. We are becoming more like Christ, we, or at least we should be. We should be becoming more complete, more whole, more made in the image of Christ. Our faith should be in the process of growing. How we view Christ, how we love Christ, and how we serve Christ are things that should be growing. We should see see improvement in. We should see progress in. That's what edification is. The building up of someone's faith and relationship with Christ. But how do we seek that in one another? How do we get from being so consumed with myself? to where I become consumed with another believer's faith. We get so caught up in our individualistic perspectives about how I am, how I'm doing, how I'm feeling that we don't think, I wonder how they're doing in their walk. I wonder how their faith is maturing. I wonder how their faith is growing because what Paul is calling us to is to prioritize and value the growth of other believers' faith, not to be so isolated, to think that ours is the only one that matters in our life. How do we do this? Love, edification comes from love. First Corinthians one eight. Please look with me on your notes or on the screen. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Loving one's neighbor is connected to pleasing one's neighbor, which ultimately comes together in us edifying our neighboring believers. Think of this. Maybe the reason that we don't consider one another's faiths is we don't love them the way that we should. That is a personal shot in the heart to me to be challenged by God's word, to question whether our love is really legitimate, genuine and authentic, or if it's merely something that we profess to have edification depends on love. If you love your brother, your brethren in Christ, you will desire to know how they are doing. You will desire to see their faith built up, edified, further formed to completion and fullness in Christ. But if that desire, if that curiosity, that priority is absent, then Paul calls into question whether the presence of love is in our hearts for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Only unity can support this relationship. So what do we apply from this? Believers are called to live for the building up of one another's faith out of love, out of love. The more we grow in love for one another, the more we grow in our priority to see one another's faith built up. Why is God, God glorified when this is present in the church? Because after all, we're talking about unity and we're talking about God's glory How is God glorified when those who are strong and mature bear and please the convictions and consciences of those who are less mature and weak in their faith? It glorifies God because it is so different than everything else in the world around us. In a world that says you are obligated to yourself first and then others, it is different. In a world that says you should love yourself first and then love others, it is different. God is glorified in this because it magnifies how powerful his love is. That the love that he showed us, that he commands us, is so great, is so mighty, is so powerful, that it makes me forget that of myself that I'm a priority but instead causes me to prioritize the faith and the edification and building up of others. Guys, it is counter-cultural to live this way for other people. And that's why God is glorified Christ is our example in this. I love how Paul in this text two times gives us Jesus as an example for us to look at, to consider, and to apply. Look at verse 3 where Jesus is given for us to see and observe for how it looks like to please our neighbor. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. There's two conjunctions. There's four and even. The first one stresses emphasis. The second, an explanation. Paul is saying, pay attention to the way that Christ did it, so that you're informed in how you're supposed to do it. What did Christ do? Christ did not please himself. Christ did not seek personal gain or personal satisfaction while he was here on earth. Christ did not seek those things. He was not focused or overwhelmed or centered or concerned for himself. But what did he do? Paul quotes a Messianic psalm, Psalm 69, verse 9, where he records the Psalm of David that says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What does this quote describe? Why does Paul allude back to psalms to give us the point of how Jesus pleased others and not himself? The first word he uses is reproaches, which means words of slander, revile, or insult. Words meaning to tear someone down or to offend someone. And the psalmist wrote, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul's referring to the sin that was directed at God was redirected and born by Christ. This is a reference to Christ's death. That that which wasn't originally directed at Christ, Christ willingly chose to bear himself. That's the example he gives. Christ willingly submitted himself to bear the reproaches of sinners to please his father. If Christ bore something that didn't belong to him, how much more should we bear with one another? If our savior bore the insults, the revilings, the harsh words, the sin that was directed at his father. And yet in order to please his father, he chose to bear those things for him. How much more should we do the same if our savior did it too? What is the purpose of this quotation? What is Paul trying to highlight, get us to focus on? The first thing is to show how Jesus willingly experienced the abuses and insults of sinful men to please his father so that sinners would be saved. And secondly, Jesus sacrificed greatly for the pleasure of his father. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of his father. What can we apply from Christ's example to our lives? I think the first thing we can glean, we can gain from this is to forsake all reasons, feelings, excuses that we have that keep us from pleasing our neighboring brethren. Because Christ appealed to and held onto none of them. Let me pause to reflect on that for a moment. Think of the burden that Jesus bore. Think of the sins of the world that were upon his shoulders. Our iniquities, our trespasses were put on him. Did he make excuses? Did he come up with reasons why it should be avoided or why he shouldn't have to do it? Did he try to wiggle his way out? Was he honest in the garden with God? Yes. But was he still willing? Yes. Christ did not make excuses in bearing the burden that his father set before him. We should not make excuses when bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters around us, because our Savior did not do that either. What a challenging thing to think of the example our Savior sets for us. Because if you're like me, you have a library of excuses at your disposal disposal for you to use for you to cling to for you to reference to try to get out of things but Christ did no such thing to please his father the second application we get from this which i think is really the focus and key is pleasing one another for their edification the growth of their faith requires self-sacrifice Paul was not saying it was easy or would be easy. Was it easy for Jesus to please his father? No, it cost him his life. He suffered, and yet he did it. The example is for us. It will take self sacrifice for us to apply the principles we see in Romans 15. It will take us denying ourselves, denouncing our rights letting go of things we hold to for the sake of being obedient and pleasing our neighbor for their good. And for their edification, it will not be easy, but it is something that we are called and commanded to do as a church because God is glorified in it. Now we're going to turn the page just slightly with Paul. Paul transitions to what I like to call an inspired rabbit trail where he diverts from his main focus to hit something that he believes is very critical for his audience to know. And I believe it's very important for us to know here as a body today. He branches off from his main focus on how believers glorify God by how we treat one another to give a very simple highlight of why scripture matters. So if you would read verse four with me where Paul writes, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What is Paul trying to emphasize in this little inspired rabbit trail? Well, if you notice earlier in verse three, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, for whatever was written, referencing to the Old Testament, whatever was written before. And he says, whatever was written before was written for our instruction, for us to be informed about something we did not previously know. So that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, Paul wants to highlight two, that's four, two key things that we get from scriptures that scripture is the source of. And guys, please pay attention as we walk through these things, because I know some people in our body are going through some really hard times. And what Paul gives us this little highlight, this little insight is of wonderful benefit to our souls. If we give it the time that it deserves. So what is Paul highlighting here? He highlights two key aspects of scripture. These two things belong to Scripture. That Scripture was written, it was revealed, and it was written, so that we would know and experience and and have these two things to our benefit. Let's look briefly at what these two things are, what they mean for our understanding of why Scripture was written. The first one is perseverance. Scripture was written so that we might have perseverance. What does it mean to persevere? It means to bear up under to not to try to escape or to not to fold under pressure. It means to abide under in a patient strength. And so perseverance then is remaining steadfast and not faltering under hardship. That's what perseverance is. The ability to remain under pressure or a burden and not give in. I like to think of it as bearing under the weight of a back squat. One of the most painful things you'll ever experience as a human being is trying to hold at a 90 degree position in a back squat. Everything in your body and in physics wants you to go this way. And yet you have to fight and remain steadfast to stay upright. You have to persevere underneath that burden to stay in the appropriate place. That's what it means to persevere. Now, why is it important that you and I, gain perseverance from Scripture. Why do we need to have the strength to abide under pressure, under burden, under difficulty in our lives? Life's hard. It's pretty simple. Is not life hard? Are there not burdens? Are there not struggles? Are there not things that keep us up at night, that wake us up early in the morning, things that we feel weigh heavy on us throughout the day, things that we can't get out of our mind, things that we can't ignore, things that we can't cast off. And not only throw on that, the Christian life, the, the, the constant battle with temptation, the battle to be a good witness, the battle to not succumb to blending in with culture around us, the tribulation that comes, the affliction that comes, all of these hard things that pressure the believer to fold in, to give way. And what does Paul say? Scripture gives us perseverance. How does scripture give you and I perseverance? I was so encouraged in Sunday school this morning, where we were looking at worship with the junior high, and a wonderful example of this stood out. Daniel chapter three, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is that not a story that gives perseverance? And is not scripture littered and filled to the brim with testimonies and records of God's faithfulness that when we take the opportunity to look at those, we gain perseverance from them. That is how scripture gives us perseverance because scripture is overflowing with a million stories and a million truths that help us to handle the weight and the pressure and the burden of life. And so brothers and sisters, if you are burdened, I ask you to turn to scripture. Your burden might not be removed but you will find your strength to bear it. The next thing he gives is so crucial as well. He says, "Scripture is given for perseverance, but also the encouragement. Encouragement. Encourage it means simply to call on someone. It has a lot of different meanings. Um, the Greek word does. It's very flexible." Um, But here it refers to communicating truth with the purpose of bringing help and comfort. And so encourage, it means calling people to see the words of truth that will help their souls. Now, why is this important for life? Why is this important that scripture has this for us to our availability, to our ability to grab it, to grasp it, to apply it? Because life hurts. Because life is sad because life hits you sometimes in ways that you never saw coming. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all need encouragement in a lot of ways in our lives. Don't we from the smallest little trial we face to the biggest life altering circumstance in our lives. We are a people in need of constant encouragement because we get downtrodden. We get overwhelmed and we get consumed with the feeling that we can't overcome our circumstances. So what does scripture offer to us? Help for our souls. Turn to the scriptures to find encouragement, to find truth that help, helps and comforts your, your souls in times of need. Turn to it, appeal to it, go to it, because scripture is the source of truth that helps and comforts our souls. I love how Paul ties these two truths, these two realities of scripture, perseverance and encouragement with the thing we often lose in difficult times, hope. When circumstances are so bad, so trying, so difficult, we are so quick to lose hope that things could be better, that things will get better, or that as if you could make it through this. Encouragement and perseverance are essential to us having hope. Hope here is described as to have a confident expectation. It has an element of certainty, not a wishy-washy kind of wishing or possibility of seeing it might happen, but a certainty to it, a confidence in it. But the question is a hope in what? What is it that you and I need to hope in? When circumstances are hard, what is it that you and I need to have confidence in to have certainty fixed in when we are going through things that are difficult in our lives? If you look at the book of Romans as a whole, the theme for hope is something known to be true yet unseen, something known to be true yet unseen in Romans chapter five, the hope is the glory of God. Now, how is God's glory our hope? The answer is it's everything to our hope. Because when Paul writes the glory of God, what does he have in mind? He has God restoring all things to perfection. He has in mind our perfect communion in relationship with God, restored and fully realized. And he has also in mind us enjoying and worshiping God forever, completely free of sin. Hope in the glory of God being fully realized, being fully seen and fully on display is the greatest hope believers have. Is it not? Our greatest hope is not that circumstances get better. Our greatest hope is, is that we get to enjoy the glory of God forever. That is the hope that we need to have. That's the hope that Paul wants us to have perseverance and encouragement in so that we maintain it when circumstances are rough, tiring, demanding, hurt, hurt, hurtful. Hope is also found in Romans 8:23 through 25 for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. So hope is things being made to where God intends them to be. So the glory of God is our hope because in his glory, our greatest good will be realized. Probably one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible is revelation chapter 21, verse one through five. You guys might want to turn there. I'm not going to look at it to see what it is, but that is the passage. And I love the heading of it in my Bible all things made new. That is the daily hope that we as believers have to cling to is all things being made new, that things will change for our good. When God's glory is fully realized, it is the hope that things will not remain or stay as they are, but that the glory of God is inevitable. And thus our good is inevitable as well. That is the hope that we through perseverance and encouragement of the strict scriptures must have. And so what's our application from this portion of our text? Scripture provides the perseverance and encouragement we need to have hope in the words of God that keep us living in obedience despite difficulty around us. God's word gives us what we need so that we can have hope in the difficult lives that we have. Let's look at the second reason or how we glorify God through how we treat one another. We should glorify God through being of the same mind with believers who are different than you glorify God through being of the same mind with believers who are different than you. If you would read verse five with me, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. The NASB translate this, now may the God who gives, um, the NIV and a couple of other really good translations, I believe translate a little better, um, where it says, now may the God of... The focus is on God being the source of perseverance and encouragement, not necessarily God giving it. Just a little nuance there, but that's be why um, your translations might look a little different. So God is the source of this encouragement and perseverance. Notice how he uses the same words from verse 4 and, and carries them over to verse 5 to describe God. What's Paul trying to say? When you see two words used in one verse and those same two words used in the next verse, a point is trying to be made. The same scripture that gives you perseverance and encouragement comes from the God who gives, who offers, who's the source of the same. God is the God of the scriptures. And so he appeals, he asks the God of perseverance and encouragement to give the Roman church something he wants them to have. What is this thing that Paul appeals to God for the Roman church to have? He asked them to grant, to give or bestow upon them something important, something critical, something essential for them to have in their church, for it to be glorifying to God. What is it? To be of the same mind. What does it mean to be of the same mind. Here, the Greek word means to imply agreement or sameness in thinking, where our thoughts are identical to one another, where we share in the same process and values of our thinking. And it's to be between fellow believers. We are to have the same mind as one another. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that all of us need to have the same opinions? Doesn't mean that all of us need to have the same convictions. Doesn't mean that all of us need to be exactly identical in every single way that we think. No, this next phrase is very helpful. Look with me if you would at verse five, be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. That is the key. That is the crucial key to what it means to be of one mind. The shared thinking of believers, our sameness of mind, flows from the same understanding of Jesus. If we believe and trust and understand the truth of Jesus together, that unites our mind in the most important truths in the world. What Paul is saying is, is that Jesus shapes and directs the collective thinking of believers. And so when our thoughts and our thinking is centered on the person of Jesus, that centers and unites and connects our minds together as individuals. We do not have to become identical to one another in how we view the world in every single circumstance or in every single way but we are called to be of the same mind by believing in the same Jesus and by believing in the truth of Jesus. The truth of Jesus has that power to where it unites people who are radically and fundamentally different from one another. And the strength and the power of the truth of Christ makes us of one mind together And so the sameness of mind means to be united and identical in our thinking about Jesus, thus with each other. And so when we share our thinking and our thoughts on Christ, and our priority and our doctrine is all rooted and based in Him, then we are made to be of one mind with one another. While we might disagree over secondary issues of conscience, we can be inseparably united over the person of Jesus. We can be inextricably tied together, centered on one another, connected with one another in our thoughts. If Jesus unites us all, if the truth of Jesus that we know is in our hearts, it brings us together. So is sameness of mind something that we attain to or God gives? I think that's a valid question our text proposes. If sameness of mind comes from Jesus of being centered and rooted and grounded in the truth of Jesus, is it something that God gives or something that we attain? If you would look with me at your, at your notes or up on the screen at two passages um, of in other writings of Paul in Romans 12, 16, he writes, be of the same mind toward one another. And in second Corinthians three thirteen eleven 13, he writes, finally, brethren rejoice be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, which is a command. And so obviously like-mindedness is something that we pursue or do in obedience to God's word. That's only half the picture. Yet Paul uses the word grant to imply that it's something that God has to give. And so what's the truth we gain from combining those two thoughts together? You and I have a role to grow in our unity of mind, our sameness of mind that as we understand our savior better, as we pursue to know him deeper, more intimately, more biblically, we also get to know and Combine with one another and our thoughts unified with Christ. Think of this. Think of the wonder of this that I have something more vastly in common with a brother or sister from India than I would with someone of the same exact background, same exact personality same exact likes, dislikes, hobbies, whatever. I have something stronger, more valuable, more precious in common with them than anything else that ties us together. That's how powerful the truth of Jesus is. If we are united in Jesus, if we're united in the truth of Jesus, then we can be of the same mind and we can glorify God together. By what God gives about His Son, we can foster and attain sameness of mind with different people. And by the way, that's what we're doing now. By all of you sitting here, hearing God's Word, by all of you choosing to study God's Word with one another, you are participating in being unified in the truth of Jesus. Hearing God's Word taught corporately and individually contributes to us being of the same mind through Jesus. So here's the application we get from this. Pursue oneness of mind by loving and believing the truth of Jesus together. In all of our differences, we have Jesus in common. In all of our distinctions, we share the same Christ. And it's that knowledge, it's that truth that unites us and brings us together despite our difference. Paul gives the reason that we should be on one mind, why it matters that we are centered on Jesus in our thoughts in verse 6. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one accord there means of the, literally of the same mind, but also unanimously it describes an action being done all together as a group of people it 's the opposite of being divided or disjointed. We see this word occur a lot in Acts to describe what the early church did. Um, it describes their prayers together, they did it as the same, in the same mind unanimously in unity together, but also in Acts five it describes how the church gathers together. They gathered at one location. Um, all together. I like to think of it this way. You guys see it around when you're, when you're driving around or wherever. One accord. Picture geese. Okay. Geese migrate in a very specific way, in a very specific pattern, in a very specific focus of one accord. The geese line up in a particular way and they're all headed in the same direction. That's what it means to be of one accord is to where we share in a common goal with a common purpose, with a common focus heading in a common direction. It's where we're united in the thing that we are doing together. We're not disjointed. We're not divided, but corporately and collectively we're all together doing the same thing. And what is this thing that being centered on the truth of Jesus enables us to do that we should be doing on one accord? glorify God. That's where unity comes into play in glorifying God, where we are called to with one voice, literally one mouth. We are called together as the body, not to only glorify God individually in our lives, but to glorify God together as the church. We are called together as East point and as churches around the globe that in our local body, we together in relationship with one another seek to honor and praise and glorify God by being of the same mind so that together we glorify God. What a wonderful and amazing thing that we as individuals are called together to glorify Christ. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean for you and I to glorify God together as one voice as the body to where together we give God what he deserves to glorify means to recognize or adorn or esteem God for who he is. It's a combination of what it means in the Greek to think of with the word in Hebrew to emphasize something as important or impressive It's we ascribe and exalt God for what is true and great about him. That is the call of every individual. That is the call and purpose of our lives in us being together as the church to glorify God together. So we together are here to ascribe and exalt what is true and great about him. So what do we apply from this? Sameness of mind is both an object of God's glory and an agent of His glory in the church. When we are centered and united in the truth of Jesus, that not only gives God glory, but it enables us to give God glory. If we were separated, disjointed in our thinking about Jesus, we would not glorify God well, would we? We would not work together well. We would not fellowship together well. We would not evangelize together well. But if we are united on the truth of Jesus, we can with one accord fulfill our purpose as the church. That's why it matters what we believe about Jesus and that we share it with one another. The third point of how our unity glorifies God. We glorify God in accepting one another just as Christ accepted us. Let's read verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Accept here means to take to oneself or receive to oneself. It's an extended focus from Romans chapter 14. A A good example of this is in Philippians chapter, I mean, Philippians 15 verse 17. Where Paul writes, for perhaps he was for this reason separated you for a while That you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. The context for that passage greatly displays the meaning of this word. Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. He ran away. Even though both of the, he ran away from Philemon, became a believer and found Paul. Paul then had a relationship with Philemon, a brotherly relationship, and they would often host church, a church at Philemon's home. And Paul writes to Philemon to welcome Onesimus back into his household. That's what it means to accept one another. It means to welcome one another or to embrace them or approve of them in our lives. So why would we not accept one another? Why would we distance ourselves from one another? Why would we avoid one another? Why would we ignore one another? Because we would highlight each other's differences. Because we highlight the things that separate us. But what are we to do instead? We are to just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Again, Christ is our example. How did Christ accept us? Through his own death. What did he do? He accepted us into the family of God. Christ accepted great fallen sinners of immense weakness into God's household to have communion with him. Did Jesus accept us on the basis of our personality? Did Jesus accept us on the basis of our appearance? Did Jesus accept us on the basis of the opinions that we have? No. He accepted us on the basis of his love for us in whose we are. We were his, we belonged to him. Now, what was the purpose of Christ accepting us? Why should we accept one another? Why should we welcome one another into each other's lives? Why should we embrace one another? Why should we have a sense of belonging to one another where we foster relationships with each other to the glory of God? That is the ultimate reason why we do what we do. That is the ultimate reason why we should accept one another because God is glorified when we accept one another because of the love, which he has for us in a world where we ignore and we ostracize and we go our separate ways. When the differences come to light, God is glorified when by love and by the example of Jesus, we welcome each other into one another's lives and we don't turn one another away. We accept one another in love because Christ accepted us in love. Jesus is our example. Finally, the last thing we can draw from verse 7 Think of how Christ accepted you into his family and communion with God. Then do the same for other believers. Accept them for the glory of God. My challenge to you, brothers and sisters. is to welcome, embrace, and accept one another, even if they're different than you, to the glory of God. That might look like inviting someone over to dinner that you know you have a disagreement with. That might look like discipling or fellowshipping with those that you are different than. But whenever we accept, whenever we embrace, whenever we belong with others who are different than us, and the only commonality we have is Christ, that glorifies God when we accept each other because of that love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you continue to help us, O oh Lord, to grow in our ability to honor you and glorify you in our unity. To please one another, to be of the same mind, and also, Lord, to accept one another for the glory of God. Because, Lord, it is all for your glory that we are here together as the body. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.